You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. To support this podcast, go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click Donate. Jesus ignored and he contradicted the societal rules of his day that pushed some people to the edges and excluded them. Whatever reason we're using to marginalize people today, Jesus would have, would, would, would have stood in contradiction to This is Herb Montgomery with Renewed Heart Ministries, and I want to welcome you to episode 232 of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish Galilean prophet of the poor might offer us today in our work of survival, resistance, liberation, restoration, and transformation. Our title this week is The Lost Coin from the Q Scholarship, and our feature text is Sings Gospel Q 15, 8 through 10. Or what woman who has 10 coins, if she were to lose one coin, would not light a lamp and sweep the house and hunt until she finds it? And on finding, she calls the friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels over one repenting sinner. Our uh, companion text, actually the only text that it shows up in the canon, is in the Gospel of Luke 15, 8 through 10, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's begin this week by talking about the term sinner and and how it's used in the Gospels. And and it's used in the Gospels in a very particular sense. It's not in a a universal, like everybody's a sinner sense. And Jesus's social political context is, is, is at the root of understanding how this term was used. I want you to imagine this week uh, a circle. And those at the, the center, they controlled and they made the decisions for the circle, while those who were pushed from the center towards the edges, um, they had less and less say, um, and, and that say became less and less the further away from the center they found themselves. And what determined how close to the center someone operated was an idea that, that we, I think today, have a difficult time understanding, and that's the idea in Jesus's culture of purity or ritual purity. And those on the edges, once again, who were who were pushed there? Um, they were done so. They were pushed to the edges by labeling them sinners. And those on the edges of the of the circle, remember, these are the ones that had no power, they had no privilege, and they had no voice. Now, cultural 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 or, or ritual purity codes um, in any society they're used to bring order to the chaos of our world. That's the anthropological. Um, uh, explanation as to why they exist. And, and ritual purity codes, they're a way of organizing our communities. And, and um, what, what purity cultures, uh, the cultures that, that organize their society according to, to purity ritual codes, these cultures, what they're concerned about, um, we, we find in Bruce Malina's book, The New Testament World, Insights from Cultural Anthropology. And, and, and he describes, this is from page 125, specifically about the general cultural 
visual map of social time and space, about arrangement within the space thus defined, and especially about the boundaries separating the inside from the outside. The unclean or impure is something that does not fit the space in which it is found. That belongs elsewhere. That causes confusion in the arrangement of the generally accepted social map because it overturns boundaries. Again, these were used to, to order or to organize um, certain communities or certain cultures. And, and, and it wasn't just done back then. We see examples of this today where um, things are not accepted within a social map and, a social map, and um, they're seen as overturning boundaries. Um, we, we manage purity in society today and, 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 uh, uh, and, and within smaller communities within society too. We use things like gender, we use things like race, uh, we use a person's sexual orientation, we use a person's gender expression or gender identity. Um, examples of this can be like a woman pastor. There are some religious communities that feels like that transgresses or overturns a boundary. Um, the, or the marriage of people from two different races. There are some societies or cultures where they think that overturns a boundary. Um, two men holding hands in public, um, that, that uh, uh, is uh, in some communities looked upon as generally uh, an unaccepted practice that goes against their social map that overturns boundaries. Or a man in drag is is interpreted, again, in certain communities as transgressing or overturned boundary, ba overturning boundaries, um, not fitting the space in which it's found, to use uh, Bruce's words, um, as belonging elsewhere. It's uh, causing confusion in the arrangement of a generally accepted social map. All of these things would be... Um, examples of how communities today, right or wrong, still practice this way of ordering societies. And today, we may or we may not use the ancient language of purity to name something as clean or to name it as unclean, uh, but we still, in many social settings, we push those who transgress community boundaries from the center of that community to its edges. It's called marginalizing. We marginalize them because we perceive them as not belonging. Now, in Jesus's culture, this was done primarily with various interpret interpretations of the Torah. Those who, whose lives aligned with the community's interpretation of the Torah, they were more clean. They were more pure than others. They belonged. And those who, whose lives didn't align, they were marginalized or pushed to the edges, and they were labeled as sinners. That's where this term comes in, and that's how this term is used. The community looked upon um, them as outsiders. Even though they may have been Jewish, um, they were sinners. And, and uh, again, it, in this use of the term sinner, it's not universal. Not everyone's a sinner. It's only those who didn't measure up to the community's definition of what was clean or what was pure. Now, now first, let's consider the Torah's rituals about cleansing or about purity, and then we're going to look at uh, various interpretations of the Torah that were competing for control in Jesus's day. Mary Douglas, in her book, Purity and Danger, an analysis of the concepts of pollution and taboo, she helps us understand how the Torah's 
occupation with purity, how that operated within the Torah. This is from page 35. She writes, Dirt is the byproduct of a systemic ordering and classification of matter, insofar as ordering involves rejecting inappropriate elements. The idea of dirt takes us straight into the field of symbolism and promises a link-up with more obviously symbolic systems of purity. We can recognize in our own notions of dirt that we are using a kind of omnibus compendium which includes all the rejected elements of ordered systems. In its relative idea, shoes are not dirty in themselves, but it's dirty to place them on a dining room table. Food is not dirty in itself, but it's dirty to leave cooking utensils in the bedroom or food bespattered on clothing. Similarly, bathroom equipment in the drawing room, out-of-door things indoors, underclothing appearing where overclothing should be, and so on. In short, our pollution behavior is the reaction which condemns any object or idea likely to confuse or contradict cherished classifications. The Torah's concept of, of clean and unclean, or, or think instead, think order versus chaos, it was not just about individuals, but it applied to the community as a whole, the body politic. And so it created and maintained community boundaries. And it, it also, therefore, uh, created a community identity as well. It defined the community. And two contemporary examples we have of how this works, um, the United States, here in the United States during the Jim Crow era, um, all of life was once seg segregated based on race. And race separation, even today, is still the norm in many parts of the country, even though in, it's in the absence of explicit state enforcement or, or laws. Um, it, there are still communities that are very much divided against or along uh, racial lines. Um, another contemporary example is how elite sectors of society use things like etiquette. Um, they use that today as their own purity code, um, and it maintains a kind of class separation. These are lines drawn along uh, uh, what class a person uh, belongs to in society. And purity cultures historically they've resulted in exceptionalism. And I want to talk about that for a moment, too. The, the pure community um, inevitably begins to also believe that they are chosen or they're the exceptional ones. And evidence of this today can be seen in, in the, the United States patriotic ideologies of, of global capitalism, so to speak, that that's somehow exceptional. Um, we also witnessed it this last fall in Charlottesville with, with white supremacists chanting blood and soil. And, and, and we, we, we may not organize our societies around an ancient purity code, but we do follow unspoken community boundaries and, and practices uh, regarding what belongs and what doesn't belong. And Mary Douglas also writes, there are no special distinctions between primitives and moderns. We are all subject to the same rules. In other words, this is a human behavior. That was on her book, same book, uh, page 40. And then again on page 190, she, she explains that we need to begin perceiving and naming the destructive way of uh, this specific destructive way of, of ordering society and, and to become aware of the seeds of alienation that it produces and that, that this way of, of, of ordering society, bringing order to the chaos, the, the, the alienation that it contains. In Jesus' time, 
the social or societal purity codes, they functioned politically and economically as well as socially. And this is probably my, my favorite part of, of the podcast this, this week. It helps us dive in to what was really taking place back then. An example uh, is given by William Herzog in a, a 1982 uh, uh, presentation that he gave. It's quoted in Ched Meyer's book, Binding the Strong Man. Um, Herzog, uh, so, uh, so he said, according to Leviticus 11.38, if water is poured upon seed, it becomes unclean. The passage, however, does not distinguish between seed planted in the soil and seed detached from the soil. In years of poor harvest, uh, which was a, f a frequent occurrence owing to poor soil, drought, warfare, locust plagues, and poor methods of farming, this text was a source of dispute. Why? During such lean years, grain was imported from Egypt. But the Egyptians irrigated their fields, putting water on seed, so their grain was suspect, perhaps even unclean. The Sadducees judged that such grain was unclean, and anyone consuming it also became unclean. They were quite willing to pay skyrocketing prices commanded by the scarce domestic grain because they could afford it. One senses economic advantage being sanctioned, since the Sadducees were often large landowners whose crops increased in value during such time. By contrast, the Pharisees argued that the Pentateuchal ordinance applied only to, to seed detached from soil, or, or before it was planted, so to speak. Therefore, one could be observant and still purchase Egyptian grain. Now, this is fascinating, this, this debate over the, the instruction, the purity instruction of Leviticus 11.38. The Sadducees, uh, you can see from this example that the Sadducees' position uh, was not only financially advantageous um, to them, but, but it also kept them centered in the community as more pure than others. They could afford to buy the pure grain while others couldn't. And the Pharisees, by contrast, the, the Pharisees' position, it would have been more liberal, but and it would have been more popular among the middle and working class. And this is where the tension comes in. This was actually a class debate. And the, the, those who could uh, those who subscribed to the Sadducees, they were well centered. The Pharisees were trying to to open up the center to other people and allow other people to also remain clean. Um, except once again, as we said last week, they still kept their own central position in determining um, what was clean and what wasn't. And the poor, the third category, we need to look at this week is the poor. This dispute between the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have been lost on the poor. They had no money to either to buy either the cheaper Egyptian grain or the more expensive domestic grain of the Sadducee landowners. The poor were marginalized um, regardless of whose teaching they followed. Uh, a similar example, uh, can, as a tangent, a similar example can be seen today in how political parties hire unpaid interns to work for them. Uh, this fills their ranks with young people who, who come from wealthy families and can afford not to work for wages just to survive. There's people that just to survive, they have to be getting a, pay a paycheck. And over time, if, if a political party is using children from families whom the children can afford not to earn wages for their work, over time, the worldview that's supported and promoted by those parties, it's going to tend toward the interests of those wealthy families 
and the way wealthy families look at things rather than those of the poor and the working class. And Jesus, Jesus came teaching a preferential option for the poor. He wasn't teaching what the Pharisees were teaching about purity. He wasn't teaching what the Sadducees were teaching about purity. He came teaching a preferential option and, and actually exemplifying a preferential option for the poor. And it's, it's a partiality, a solidarity with those on the margins. And these would have, would have been in society um, those who, who, who didn't resonate with either the teachings, once again, of the more liberal Pharisees or the more conservative interpretations of the, the Sadducee elites, they were marginalized by both the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And, and I share all of this background to help us understand how the term sinner would have been used in Jesus's culture, both by Sadducees and Pharisees, and how Jesus lived in contradiction to this. The, the, the more ritually pure you were, remember, the more clean you were, the more included, the more centered, the more privileged you would have been in Jesus's world. And those who were, who were deemed unclean, remember, they were the ones labeled as sinners. And it was, it was these sinners, these outsiders, who we see in the story were embracing Jesus's teachings. It was these sinners or outsiders that that Jesus was himself. He was living in solidarity with, and it was it was these these were the ones that Jesus was always seen with, and, and these outsiders were the ones that were often seen with Jesus. And let's talk about this idea of repentance this week. That shows up in this week's saying too. In Luke, remember those labeled as sinners included not just the poor, but also a certain sector of the wealthy, and that was the wealthy tax collectors. They had been marginalized uh, based on their collusion with Rome. And in Luke, uh, these were the sector of the wealthy that were responding to Jesus's teachings, and they were changing the course that they were on. Jesus's gospel, remember, was good news to the poor. You find that in Luke 4.18. But Jesus also, his message to the, to the wealthy, to the rich, is that he called the rich into a community of shared resources with the poor. His community was a community of, of distributive justice, and, and no one was to have too much while others had uh, too little. And we've covered this at length in, in past podcasts. But he called the wealthy who had more than they needed to share with or, or to give to um, those who were being exploited by the economics of the temple um, and, and whose basic daily needs were going unmet. Jesus called the wealthy to sell their surplus and to give it to the poor um, from whom they had, the, the, the wealth had been stolen. And, and those who responded to Jesus weren't those, the Sadducees and Pharisees, labeled as clean or pure. It was those who were wealthy sinners, the, the tax collectors, who began heeding Jesus's call to repent. One example is the story of, of a tax collector named Zacchaeus. In Luke 19, 8 through 10, it says, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And wealthy sinners, um, 
like Zacchaeus, they gravitated toward Jesus' Jesus's call of, of wealth redistribution. In Luke 7, 29, it says, All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right. And in Luke 15, 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. And the, the, the question was raised, why Jesus was sharing table fellowship with sinners and wealthy tax collectors, and these sinners, these these outsiders. Well, the answer given back in this week's saying is these people were repenting of their participation in the systemic and social, economic, and political exploitation of the poor. They were rejecting that system, and they were choosing to walk a radically different, more communal path of, of taking responsibility of the care for those that were being exploited by the wealthy. They were the ones responding to Jesus. And it, there's a beautiful story truth here. Those who had been pushed to the margins or the edges of society and labeled as unclean, they were proving to be more righteous in relation to the poor and the exploited than those around whom their society was centered. And it's it's even possible that if you think about it, the tax collectors, they might have even sensed a connection between their own marginalization and the marginalization of the poor. And, and this shared experience of being excluded, it could have prepared them to respond compassionately to, to Jesus's message and, and his call to inclusive distrib distri distributive uh, justice. And, and, and lastly, this week, I want to talk about the fact that this is a story of uh, using the example of a woman. And I love the fact that Jesus uses the story of a woman. She was a member of another marginalized group in his culture. And Jesus lifts up the example of a woman to exemplify a more evolved kind of social righteousness than his male critics were, were living. And, and just as, as a woman knows the value of rejoicing when, when that which was lost is found, Jesus says through this saying this week, so too you men should be rejoicing right now in, in the wealthy sinner's change of direction. And instead, Jesus' Jesus's critics were, they were well-centered and wealthy themselves, and they couldn't identify with either the marginalized wealthy or the marginalized poor. And I think, again, I think calling Jesus a feminist is anachronistic. Um, it's not fair to use a term we have today to try to define him back then. Uh, but given his own space and time, his treatment of women and the equity of value that he saw in them, it still is noteworthy. He lived and taught within a deeply Roman and Jewish patriarchal world. But in exemplifying women and holding women up uh, as an example to be followed, uh, exhibiting qualities that were to be followed by, by the men that he was critiquing, um, that they should be more like, we, we catch a glimpse in this of how his, his valuation of women was progressive uh, for his own culture. And what's the takeaway this week? Well, number one, Jesus ignored and he contradicted the societal rules of his day that pushed some people to the edges and excluded them. Whatever reason we're using to marginalize people um, today, Jesus would have, would, would, would have stood in contradiction to. And in this inclusion of these people on the edges. He also taught a, a distributive justice for the, the needs of the poor. Justice is, is not giving people who've been marginalized or discriminated against simply an equal opportunity to compete in a system that still economically exploits a certain class where there's still winners and losers. And equity isn't giving 
people equal opportunity to climb a ladder, so to speak, that's leaning up against the wrong wall to begin with. Jesus's vision for a compassionate society was one where both exclusionary and marginalizing practices and economic exploitation are rejected in, in favor of including everyone at, at his shared table. So there's two parts we're focusing on this week uh, to Jesus' uh, uh, social vision. Uh, his, his vision was uh, heterogeneous. Everyone's voice mattered. Everyone's experience was valued. No one was pushed to the edges. No one was marginalized. And it was also communal. Um, no one had too much, while, while there were those in the community who didn't have enough. It was a community of shared values, shared production, and shared consumption. And, and I'll close this week with a passage from renowned liberation scholar and theologian Gustavo Gutierrez. Uh, he, he writes, But the poor person does not exist as an inescapable fact of destiny. His or her existence is not politically neutral, and it is not ethically innocent the poor are a byproduct of the system in which they live and for which we are responsible. They are marginalized by our social and cultural world. They are the oppressed, the exploited proletariat, robbed of the fruit of their labor and despoiled of their humanity. Hence, the poverty of the poor is not a call to, to generous relief action, but a demand that we go and build a different societal order. There's a lot to contemplate in, in this week's saying. Um, I want to close with, with uh, uh, saying's gospel cue again. Or what woman who has ten coins, if she were to lose one coin, would not light a lamp and sweep the house and hunt until she finds? On finding, she calls her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels over one repenting. Center. Heart group application. I referenced the work of Mary Douglas in, in this week's article, uh, uh, in this week's eSight, in this week's podcast. And Mary explains in her book that the, the problem with communities rooted in ritual purity, it's not the ritual part. It's, it's the purity part. The solution is not that we should become anti-ritual. The, the problem is, is how the purity part functions to marginalize and discriminate against and exclude. And she goes on to say that we have to begin creating rituals in our communities that do the opposite. And these would be rituals that, that organize a community or, 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 a, or a group on something better than othering those who are different, pushing to the edges those that are different, or scapegoating those that are different. Um, these would be rituals that, that emphasize instead our interconnectedness with everyone, where, where th there is no more insider and outsider. And These are rituals that would shape us into being people who cooperate and, and they share with one another rather than competing and striving against one another. And the early Jesus community, it, it, it practiced the ritual of a shared meal as the centerpiece of its gatherings together. And today it's called communion by some, um, others call it the Eucharist. But the ritual that shapes us into a community of both shared production and shared consumption, it, it can be, and, and really it has been, to a large degree lost with all the theology that has come to surround this ritual meal. The original social teaching was shared consumption, uh, shared production, shared production, shared consumption. And so this week, number one, I want you as a heart group to plan a shared meal together, uh, to have together. And then number two, during the meal, I want you to take a moment to discuss together how this, this shared meal is an expression of shared production and shared consumption. And then number three, I want you to take some time as a group 
to, to dream up, to brainstorm how you could be a community where everyone's voice is valued. There's no more othering. There's no more marginalizing. And a community where everyone's practicing the principles of, of shared production and shared consumption, where there's a, a justice uh, at the at the core of it, and 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 in other areas of your life as well, uh, and then as you do this, keep doing these potluck meals together. Keep doing these shared meals together. They can become a, a ritual for you and for your group that that over time will shape us into people who who practice this shared table philosophy in other areas of our life too. Uh, for all of you who are listening out there, thanks for checking in with us again this week. Thanks for supporting the work here, our work at, at Renewed Heart Ministries. Um, I'm, I'm just getting back from a month of being on the road and, and teaching at different events, and and now we're about to enter into our year-end season of, of, of donor support and, and uh, year-end contributions, and this year we need your help. You can support our work by going to RenewedHeartMinistries.com forward slash donate, uh, or you can go, uh, you can mail your contribution to Renewed Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 1211, Lewisburg, West Virginia, 24901, if you're more comfortable mailing it than making a contribution online. You can become one of our monthly contributors, or you can give a one-time donation, whichever. I just want to thank you for all the support you're giving to the work that we do. The work that we do is vital, and, and this last month has, has made that uh, evident. And wherever you are this week, keep living in love, keep engaging the work of Luke 4, 18 through 19, one day at a time, and remember, we are making a difference. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.